brought down. Yeah, totally. So, um, and by the way, if you're new here and you're like, that's super weird. You guys just have conversations with God and you believe he speaks to you. Um, that's okay. Like, you're welcome here. Uh, believe it or not, I'm a skeptic myself. And yet I come every week to pregathering prayer and God is faithful to speak things. And it ties right into the teachings. And the people that are hearing these things from the Spirit don't even know what the teaching's about. And so this week, God was there again speaking to us. And it ties right into what Evan's about to share with us. So we just want to kind of plant the seed in your mind. If it's helpful to receive this and you want to just close your eyes and, you know, you could put your hands upward towards heavens, toward the heavens of the sky and just say, Holy Spirit, we want to receive this from you. Uh, you can go ahead and do that now. But I'm going to read through this quick list of just things we gathered from pre-gathering prayer to you right now. As we're coming in through the doors, there's a lifting off of false identities and lies. As we come vulnerable, the Spirit will speak truth into us, into our new identities. Another person or group heard that we would see the face of the Father. There's a specific thing that our friend Jared shared about maybe it's one person or as a group listening to like an MP3 player and yet through our headphones we're hearing nothing and we're striving and we're frustrated trying to hear the voice of God but then God will remove the headphones, remove that barrier and put on new headphones that we'd be able to hear his voice. For Park Hill, those following Jesus and those not following Jesus, that we would be able to receive what God is like, receive his character. That we'd have renewed dependency on God and remove our dependency or our trust in the things of earth. And the last thing, that God would reshape our view of him. He's our good father that we wouldn't get lost in head knowledge. Yeah, so these are the things that were spoken this morning. Holy Spirit, would you have your way in this gathering? God, you have our attention. Thank you for being faithful to us. Amen. Awesome. Thanks, Michael. Um, we're going to get into the scripture now, and if you don't have a Bible, you're going to need one. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand, and someone can give you one. There's people ready to do that. But we are going to read the scripture before we get started, and I'm just gonna go ahead and do that. I got asked to do this like three minutes ago, so here goes nothing. Um, so we are in Matthew 6, verse five through 14, and it says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Thanks so much, Jake. Hey, let's pray, everybody. Heavenly Father, we wanna see your face. We wanna see your character. Holy Spirit, come. Make much of Jesus in your church and through your church to the world, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. We just read the text. Thanks, Jake. If you're new or visiting Park Hill, I want to welcome you. I'm Evan. Um, my wife, Sandy, and I have the joy of leading this church forward, and we're so stoked that you're here today. On Easter 2017, so last year's Easter, we began gathering as Park Hill Church in downtown San Diego last Christmas Eve. If you were here, how many of you are here for our launch thing? Cool. Last Christmas Eve, we held that official gathering at the North Park Observatory. And 21 weeks later, after our official launch, here we are, here you are, right here, gathering around Jesus and around his table. And we're just one of hundreds of expressions of Jesus's local church all over San Diego. Um, God is faithfully shaping us all into the kind of people that can change the world through the love of Jesus by the power of his spirit. And, and as, as always, for us at Park Hill, the, the future is unknown. <laughs> in, in other words, we're in the process of figuring out the logistics of where we'll be gathering over the next year. As most of you know, this is not our permanent gathering space. It wasn't intended to be at least. We're at 591st Street. Um, until last November, and, and there's some stuff up in the air how long we'll be here still. We're gonna have news for you guys soon in the coming weeks. Um, there's some exciting irons in the fire, but the future's unknown to us. Thankfully, God is infinitely wise, and he's working in such a way that keeps us dependent on him while he remains completely faithful to build his church, okay? So, and, and sometimes I just think it's important to stop and think on that. Jesus is building his church. You're part of that. Uh, it's amazing. I mean, right now, in the midst of all our brokenness and failings and shortcomings, Jesus is building his church that gathers at 2875 Dewey Road or whatever this address is, Building 177. Uh, Jesus is building his church across the Vaughn's parking lot at the Rock one of the biggest churches in the country. Jesus is doing stuff there. He's doing stuff here. Jesus is building his church at Soul Church, right downtown in Little Italy, and at Commonwealth and Golden Hill, and at all the Calvary chapels in the county, however, 38 of them or whatever they are, and at Bethel AME Church, right across the city, right across the downtown core, uh, and at St. Luke's Episcopal. All these churches, all these local expressions, they're so unique, and they breathe in and out with such... Uh, such diverse colors and breath types and so many rhythms. And, and those are just the Sunday gatherings. So all week long, Jesus is building his church in your bioengineering department classroom at San Diego State. He's building his church. Jesus is uh, intricately weaving the tapestry of time and space through you to actually accomplish what he desires to do in the universe, which is tremendous. I mean, he's doing this uh, south side of OB Pier every morning at six, whenever you go out and try to do something on waves or whatever that is, surfing, whatever it's called. Just kidding. Uh, I mean, Jesus is doing this all over the city. And it honestly, Jesus is building his church. It really takes the pressure off of us. It's meant to. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And when you step over the threshold of a welcoming community household, and you start to share bread and wine at a table of someone you're barely scratching the surface of getting to know, Jesus is building his church. Jesus is doing this, and he can't fail. 
He said, not even the gates of hell will stand against this project of mine, of which you are this little part like me. It's crazy. It's amazing. Uh, he's a master builder who can literally create anything with his bare hands and perfect wisdom. But he has all these kids that for some reason he loves to involve in his project that he could do on his own. I think of uh, my three-year-old River. He just turned three a week ago. And like, we recently painted the interior of our kitchen and he would, it terrified me at first, but then I'm like, oh, I can use this. I can, we, can, we can do a bonding through this. He would pick up like a, a roller brush and start painting the wall. I'm like, oh, it's the right color. Let's let him have it. Let's let him try. And so like, there was this moment, I'm like, yes, that's good. And I have the vision and the resources and the wisdom and the strength to get this done without him. Uh, but when he looks up at me and he feels so affirmed and he's so delighted and he starts getting paint on the walls, it's amazing. And he starts getting paint on the tile floor. It's not amazing. It gets messy. And then he takes a block of sandpaper and starts sanding our new stainless steel fridge surface. I'm like, no, stop. So I redirect him. I redirect him uh, onto the things that he can. And it's, it's a joy in the point. Like God takes joy, even though we make a mess, God takes joy in us partnering with what he's doing. He delights in you. He delights in you. And this is the atmosphere of our text that Jacob just read. It's all about prayer. What is prayer? How does it work? Why do we even need to talk to God if he's got a plan already? Uh, he's a God who delights in you, like deep down. So what we're gonna see is that prayer is ultimately this relational exchange. It's a lot of things, but it's ultimately this relational partnership between a good father and his forgiven, loved children so that more of heaven might come crashing into earth through us, through this relationship. And so we're gonna have some time of prayer and ministry to one another after the teaching. This is something we wanna grow in as a church. We started, we dipped our toe. We dipped our toe in the waters of prayer ministry last December during our Advent series. And we started inviting people forward, but we're still getting to know each other. We're still a church that doesn't know who we are, I think, 21 weeks after launch. Come on, this is amazing. And so we dipped our toe in the waters of prayer ministry, but today we're gonna try to dip all five toes of one foot together and invite one another to pray for one another after the teaching. This is something we wanna grow in. Because we're gonna see three simple truths today in the text. You can put them on the screen. It's three simple truths. This is it. I don't know how many of you believe that first line. God is good. Deep down. It's all the way good, and you are forgiven and loved. These are core identity truths. Once you go, God is good, and then you go, you're forgiven and loved, you realize what he wants to do. We want heaven to come into our space just like he wants it. And so after the teaching, we're gonna see what the Holy Spirit wants to do through those things. As one author put it, through prayer, we partner with God to create the future. <laughs> I love that. Through prayer, we partner with him to create stuff. This happens when we genuinely, genuinely love God and become messengers of his love toward others. This is actually what this whole Sermon on the Mount's about. We're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount on Sundays. We started Jesus' sermon at the beginning of Matthew 5 
this Easter. So that was like seven weeks ago. And two weeks ago, Dr. Preston Sprinkle delivered this intense, powerful word about loving our enemies. Last week, Dan did a fantastic job with the topic of generosity and giving to the needy. And today, on Pentecost Sunday, our passage is in many ways the central heartbeat. It's the nucleus of the Sermon on the Mount in some senses, where Jesus zooms in to specifically talk about the practice of prayer itself. So let's jump right in. Jesus, his teaching style here is he goes back and forth between two things, how not to do it and how to do it. How not to pray, how to pray. So in verse five, he says this, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received the reward in full. Okay, pause, stop there. Most of us are like, easy. I, I don't have a temptation to stand on street corners and pray loud. Not my problem. Piece of cake. I'm good. Check, Jesus. I'm good with that one. Uh, Me either. I got to be honest, I rarely see any of you guys around town praying on street corners. When I do run into some of you guys on the street, it's usually by like a great coffee shop or waiting in line on Sunday afternoon for brunch outside of soda and swine or something, uh, which is also a spiritual experience, I admit. Um, But those prayers look different. (laughs) I love that. So it's easy to come to these teachings. It's easy to come to that and dismiss yourself. I'm not a Pharisee, not a hypocrite. I don't pray on street corners, dismiss ourselves. It's easy to dismiss ourselves at some level because of like the language or culture. But what we've learned this year in Matthew, if you've learned anything, you get the rhythm. What's happening here at Park Hill as we go through Matthew, Jesus is always speaking to something deeper. He's always speaking to more. So uh, the first thing Jesus says is when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. And that word hypocrite, it uh, comes from an old, old word meaning uh, performer or actor in a performance. This is basically someone who's interested in making an impression on people. Ah, okay, now we're in, this, we're in the zone now. So don't, don't be like someone who's doing something, quote, for the Father to make an impression on others primarily. Uh, don't be like someone who's trying to get attention when you pray. You might be like, still, don't worry, Evan. I'm not, I'm not like that. I don't even like praying out loud. Like, I don't even know about this pre-gathering prayer thing. What happens there? It's crazy. I feel it's not really me, let alone on street corners. So this is still not a problem for me. Uh, well, Jesus hears, Jesus' hearers didn't actually necessarily all have a problem either because back then it was common Jewish practice to pray at three fixed hours a day. So for everyone, wherever you were, you'd stop at the fixed hour and you'd just drop and pray. It was, it was less like our culture of random private closet prayer, and it was more like, more like the Muslim community, how they had fixed hours. So if you happen to be in the synagogue with other religious people or in the marketplace, uh, and it was prayer hour suddenly, then you might find yourself in a place where you'd be seen and heard praying, which was normal and great. It's like, we're a community who prays in public, normal. Um, beautiful, but that's an easy environment. When everybody's doing it, That's an easy environment uh, to find yourself slipping into a rhythm where your core motivation for praying is suddenly sabotaged by the desire to be seen praying in the right way. So this is what Jesus is speaking to. That's what he's after. That's what he's after in the whole sermon. Uh, Jesus is after not just our behavior. He's not this helicopter parent morally policing your do's and don'ts. He's not interested in the surface phenomenon that's your behavior. He's always going after core motive, always. That's what he's interested in uh, because that reveals who you think you are and who you think God is. 
He wants your core motive. He wants to get his hands on that. So don't get me wrong, Jesus isn't mad that people were praying on street corners. That's great. Uh, He wasn't mad that people were praying loud. That can be amazing and super encouraging to people around you. Uh, Those are great. Public prayer is just as fantastic as private prayer. He's not giving a formula. If you've noticed the pattern in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't giving a formula for how to act. Jesus is addressing your motives and my motives behind the things we do. Why we show up to Park Hill. Why you show up to your morning devos. Uh, He's getting to the why underneath the identity of who you are. Uh, If part of your motivation for getting up early to pray so you can catch the perfect lighting for that Instagram post about your prayer time, then it's important important that we at least stop and at least, there's nothing wrong with Instagram either, but it's important that you at least stop and hear what Jesus is saying so that your core motive isn't sabotaged by human approval. It sneaks in so subtly all the time because uh, it sounds like good approval. It sounds like just affirmingness in general, fluff. Because if you're after human approval, if that's what you're after ultimately, then in the words of Jesus, that's what you get. That's it. Like it's cheap and short-lived, but you'll get it. That's your reward, fully. Uh, so, so that's how not to pray. So how does Jesus say we are to pray? Verse six, when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who's unseen. Then your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. So Jesus says to find a private room, close the door, pray in secret. And this language I believe is metaphor. Why do I say it's metaphor? Because in Jesus' day, a single household often included several generations under one roof. It was like a one room like just a a heap of family all the time. And like they had little to no privacy ever. Their only real privacy was found outside on a hike. Okay, so it was rarely inside. Only the super rich one percenters were able to afford like a closet, like a little door inside your house. That was not normal. So when Jesus says, when you pray, go into your room and close the door, what he's really saying is, Go somewhere private where you won't have distractions, where your iPhone won't be buzzing, and that seven-minute itch to check your notifications can't be gratified. Um, Where you'll be away from people without distractions and learn who you are in the silence. Learn who you are in the silence because there's all kinds of vulnerabilities that are gonna come out that could terrify you, but that's where the Father wants to reveal his identity to you and who you are and who he is. That's the real you that starts to bubble up after an hour of of aloneness. Jesus is saying, know who that person is. Know who that person is. And Jesus goes on to say, pray to your father who's unseen. Because Jesus knows that in any any relationship, intimacy is built when people genuinely spend time together. It's not just time when two people happen to be in the same car on a road trip doing small talk with the music sometimes. That's not not necessarily intimacy, random, you happen to be with someone. Uh, it's, it's a time when two people are knowing and being known by one another on purpose. And that's why he says, pray to your father who's unseen. I wanna I want breathe that in. This is profound, deep stuff. That phrase, pray to your father. Here, here in our text today, we come to the first place in the Bible where you discover that you as a follower of Jesus can relate and pray to God as your father. It's the first time we're introduced to this idea. 
this word father and that he's yours. And I wanna be sensitive here. Right now, there's, in a room like this, there's probably triggers happening. I wanna be sensitive to the father word. I'm very aware that the idea of connecting father to God can be a very painful thing for many of us because of our relationship with our earthly fathers. And what I wanna say to that, as I've spent time this week meditating on Jesus, who not only relates perfectly to the Father, but when Philip, his disciple, said, Jesus, just show us the Father already. Jesus said, have I been with you so long, Philip? Have I been with you so long you don't know who I am already? Don't you know, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God is like Jesus. He's always been like Jesus. There was never a time when the Father wasn't like Jesus. And as we grow in our lives, we don't always know this, but there comes a time when we open ourselves vulnerably up to the possibility that God isn't like the imperfect fathers we've known. He isn't like the imperfect models of authority we've seen. God is like Jesus. He's always been. And he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And as, as I meditate on this passage, I, I'm fully convinced right now in this room, even as it was shared like 10 minutes ago by Michael about the pre-gathering prayer stuff, I think there are people in this room that have walked in here who Jesus wants to dethrone your toxic models of fatherhood that you have in your head. He wants to dethrone those things that you've received, uh, you've received in the journey of your life. And he wants to restore, he's longing to restore the word father to its rightful place in your heart. Jesus is longing for this space in your life. It's this beautiful image, this father image, that's designed to draw our hearts and minds into the reality that we actually have someone who cares deeply for everything about us. To your father God, there is nothing about you that he's bored with. There's nothing about you that's insignificant. There's nothing about you that our heavenly father isn't completely interested in. When you hear Jesus saying, when you hear Jesus saying, hey, go into the secret place, Go be still with yourself. Don't filter your life through the noise of affirmation, notifications, likes, dislikes. Please fight that with every ounce of consciousness you have. Because in that secret place, when it's all stripped back, please see there that I am absolutely on the edge of my seat interested in who you are as your father. So he says, go into the secret place and pray to your father. This is designed to evoke the reality that we actually have someone who is relationally and affectionately committed to you. Do you believe this, that God is that good for you? So the idea is we're not gonna pray in a closet scared half to death because we don't know what kind of monster lurks in there. No, when you go into the closet, turn off your phone, step into Sabbath, a rhythm of silence and rest. Spend an hour in silence maybe, not every day, but rhythmically in some way. And when you do these things, you're not only, you're not only being welcomed and uh, admitted, you're not just being admitted by the presence of a God, but you're being embraced by a dad who loves you and knows you. Father, by definition, is a protector and a caretaker. He knows everything you need, knows everything I need. He's the place we run to, and when we run there, we find a father. And you know what that means? It means freedom to confess everything you need to confess. 
that, that vulnerability, that fear of vulnerability that's really rooted in pride and insecurity, you have no use for that in his presence. Freedom to confess everything, freedom from what everybody else thinks about you. Freedom where you can speak honestly to God about your needs, either tearfully or joyfully, no matter what. This is the place we find God as that father. And Jesus said he's unseen. This is just another way of saying your father's in that secret place. That's where he wants you most. This is where he dwells. This is where his reward is. Come and live with him there and receive the reward of knowing you don't have to pretend anymore. This is the family of God. This room contains a sliver, but a beautiful sliver, several hundred children of a father who's infinitely obsessed with knowing of the intricacies of your hopes and dreams and being invited into that process with you. This is the family of God. This is the kind of rhythm our father desires. A worldwide family of children who are so aware of their father's love that we have no practical use for the approval of other people. We don't have to operate out of self-preservation or posturing or entitlement, keep grabbing a higher rung on the ladder or pride or insecurity because we've been with our father in the secret. And his love has become our core motivation for life. So then in verse seven, Jesus does his little switcheroo again, how not to pray, how to pray. And he says, when you pray, do not keep babbling like pagans for they think they will be heard because of their many words. So here Jesus wants us to avoid two things in prayer, babbling and too many words, <laughs> okay? So stay with me. Jesus was speaking to a world where pagan idol worship was everywhere, like actual spiritualist paganism. Um, it was super common to worship little g gods through physical idol worship and like weird rituals. And when it comes to pagan worship styles, one of the pagan rules of thumb was much and more. More words, more passion, more volume, more sacrifice, more bloodshed, more words. The more words, the more were heard. That was the pagan mantra. You had to show the gods how sincere you are by shouting and cutting and bleeding and doing crazy things to get their attention. And they'd wear themselves out with like begging and repetitive petitions like, God, if you'll just do this, then I'll do this for you. God, if you show up here, then I promise to do this. That was a super common pagan prayer. Uh, but listen, if you're here and you're like an actual neo-pagan druid, like actual practicing like Wicca or something, welcome. It's great to, it's great. I'd love to hear your story afterwards. I'd love to hear like, why are you in a Christian gathering? It's amazing. Uh, I'd love to talk to you and meet you. Um, so <laughs> I actually have a neo-pagan druid friend, amazing guy, um, really sweet man. And he, he's since converted to Episcopalian Christianity. But before that, he was this pagan, like actual pagan, neo-paganist. Uh, so no offense if that's you in the room, but this kind of pagan prayer, the babbling, this more words, more blood, God, if you do this for us, then I'll do this for you, that kind of prayer. Jesus is saying that that kind of prayer is actually not very intelligent. Desperate, maybe. You get the emo points for that, but it's not very coherent. Uh, because what does it do, practically? It reduces God down to a begrudging giver and it reduces people down to puny burdens. I mean, if your God is so distant and detached that he has to be like informed and convinced of your need in order to respond and like you have to barter with him about something, what kind of God is that anyway? A God that like actually overlooks and ignores or is ignorant to your needs? That's definitely not a God worthy of my praise, let alone my trust. So in sharp contrast to that, 
Jesus reveals a father whose love and power and care renders this kind of babbling prayer totally unnecessary. In Jesus' words, the next verse, don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Don't be like this, guys. You, don't, you actually don't have to be this kind of Christian influenced by pagan. You don't have to be that. Like, you have a father who knows you. He knows what you need before you can even put him to words. Do you feel that difference, that freeing difference? Let yourself feel the weight of that reality and that love. Right now, it's actually overwhelming. Your father is telling you in this moment, I'm a God who's not only completely attentive to you, but I'm a God who knows you more than you know yourself, so much so that I can articulate and act on your prayers before you can even put them to words. I'm your family. Dallas Willard articulates it this way. The pagans do not understand that prayer to the God of Israel, Jesus, the living and personal God of the universe, is intelligent conversation about matters of mutual concern. Do you view prayer like that? Intelligent conversation with the creator about stuff you both are concerned about. I love that. For followers of Jesus, prayer is marked by this mutuality. It's two parties in actual relationship. Jesus is reframing not just how people viewed God, but how they engaged him entirely as a family. Uh, Jesus' goal here isn't to just change your prayer life and to get you praying more or whatever. It, again, it, we, we tend to sink into assuming he's like a helicopter parent. He's not. It's not what he's doing. His goal isn't to get your prayer life back on track or whatever. Uh, his, his, his goal is that prayer would actually change your whole self. It would actually be the place from which your life is transformed. Not just more prayer in the week, but a transformed life. Now, let me be clear. Maybe, maybe your brain is asking questions right now. Uh, Jesus is not saying that we can't be persistent in prayer. Jesus is not saying, hey, don't be too passionate, don't be too loud, don't be too repetitive with me because it gets pretty annoying after a while. Jesus is not saying that. Uh, no, in fact, in the next chapter, in chapter seven, we're gonna hear Jesus saying to ask and seek and knock on your father's door all the time. The door's always open to boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence. So what Jesus is saying, as always, is that the core motive, the heart posture is at the core of it all. God doesn't want you to feel like you have to keep saying the same thing over and over. He doesn't want you to feel like you have to do that. Just to get his attention so that maybe he'll yield to your will. He's just saying, hey, I'm listening. I'm right here on the edge of my seat. I'm ready. I'm already here with you in your heart. I'm seeing your desires form before you do. I'm already here with you. God is saying, don't for a second think I don't know you. Because I do. And I love you. And it's almost as if Jesus knows we'll have a hard time believing this. But it's true, your father knows you and your father loves you. So, followers of Jesus, you can stop pretending. I mentioned it before, but it's, it's the fear of being vulnerable with God and his people that's actually at the root of what he wants to uproot. The fear of being vulnerable, because that's actually rooted in the kind of pride that it's so hard to see, so hard to see. You need to be in the secret so that he can shine his loving light on that fear of vulnerability. Then he gets his hand on it. Oh my gosh, heaven comes crashing into earth at that point. Heaven starts healing the brokenness of earth. You can stop pretending. 
publicly, privately, repetitively, emotionally. It doesn't matter what kinds of what the prayer looks like on the outside, whatever. You can just be sure that your father is deeply interested in you and he's declaring nonstop over you, my daughter, my son who I love, I'm well pleased with you. That's it, that's where this all starts from. But we have such a hard time believing this, don't we? Uh, speaking personally, I can't count the number of times in the last six months when, when I've like taken my same old junk to God, like my fears and insecurities about stepping into like a church plant and calling people to just join this thing that didn't exist before I, you know what I mean? It's like, what am I doing? What is this thing? Um, and I just would take my request to God, help me. And some, someone would say something along the way that'd like trigger me, like I'd get triggered. Um, and it would bring up all kinds of junk from my past and I'd get in my head and I'd start brooding and I'd be inaccessible to my wife and, and I'd be just a bummer to be around and I'd be impatient or whatever. And, and I'd, you know, I still would pray. So I'd step into prayer times knowing what a jerk I've become because I'm so fear of, afraid of being vulnerable and I'm getting in my head and recycling things said about me behind my back and all of that. And I'm like, oh God, help me. Like, I don't wanna feel triggered by people anymore. I don't wanna feel that anymore. And then I remember distinctly praying this on numerous occasions. I don't wanna feel triggered by people anymore. I just wanna know what you, believe, what you say and believe what you say about me. I just preached on the baptism of Jesus, that the Father loves Jesus and we're in Jesus and we operate from a place of beloved identity. I preached that last Sunday and I don't believe it this Tuesday. I'm so sick of this, help me. And, th and, then, and then I'll catch myself and I'll do this thing. I don't know if you do this. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, God. This is so lame. <laughs> I, I'm sorry to even go here again. I'm probably burdening you. That's really what that's born from. I'm probably burdening you. I'm probably just, I'm probably just disappointing. I know you love me mostly, but like there's a part of you that's like, come on, Evan. I know that that's there. Um, and I start rolling my eyes at myself for not getting my junk together and for keep repeat, repeat prayer, repeat business prayer with God or whatever. I'm just like, ugh. And, and as I do that little trick on God or on myself, like, oh, I'm sorry, God. I've been hearing louder and louder this week the voice of my father saying, Evan, like you're so quick to dismiss yourself from the teaching of Jesus here. You excuse yourself so easily because you think you're like a pastor or something, but you somehow still believe, like, like the pagans that babble, you still believe you're a burden to me. You still think you have to keep repeating and like saying sorry for repeating and then coming like, oh God, turn your face my way. You still think you're a burden to me, your heavenly father. Here in this secret place, you think you're rambling on and on and you're tiring me with your behavior. That's the same framework that the Pharisees and pagans had about me. You don't totally believe I'm a God who is attentive to your needs and cares. Like I want to hear you. I want you to process your junk with me. I, every time I get to hear you is a delight. That's the part that I don't believe. That's the part where I revert into a pagan form of Christianity where I have to start trading and bartering with God and offering things up on altars in order for him to maybe bless some more things that I don't think are blessed enough. 
God's like, come, like you're dismissing, you, no, I'm right here with you. Church, resist the temptation to dismiss yourself from Jesus' teaching here. Don't be like, well, sure, I had a rough week and my prayer life could be better, but I, I don't know, I'm, I'm not really, I'm really that bad off. No, today, consider that you, maybe you've thought this way about God in prayer, just like I, you self-deprecating prayer that doubles back on you. I'm sorry, God, for even bringing. You haven't believed in a God who's totally attentive to your needs and he hangs on everything you say. Jesus wants to speak directly to you about your father's love today because as we said at the beginning, God is good. You are forgiven and loved by that father and both he and you now want heaven to crash into earth. You share desires when you're in prayer like this which leads us to an actual example of prayer from Jesus. So we're wrapping up the, the teaching here. These are possibly the most well-known words of Jesus. We read them at the top of the gathering. Uh, actually, we read them in pre-gathering prayer. We sang them during worship today, uh, during the songs. Uh, sometimes we don't know what to pray. And even those of us with seminary degrees, we'd like trick ourselves into thinking we have more knowledge of how to pray. Uh, and some with 40 years of Christian life behind us, we don't know still. Sometimes we just don't have the words. So verses nine through 13 are our anchor, the Lord's Prayer. This is where our vocabulary is birthed from. This reveals to us the shape of our Father's heart in a way that you and I, as God's children, can understand. You can enter this prayer and you can feel the heart of God and participate with him relationally. So if you've been around Christianity at all, you're probably already so familiar with this. I call this the third rail of preaching. You're so used to just trucking down the track of church that this electrifying rail doesn't actually do what it's designed to do anymore. So let's allow the Spirit to refresh our hearts as we come to the Lord's Prayer right now. I'm gonna read this out loud, slowly, with very minimal commentary. And so there are people who devote their entire lives to studying just this prayer. And there are churches that do whole year-long series on just this prayer, but we're just gonna let it wash over just a few minutes. The way his disciples heard Jesus say it the first time and probably hundredth time. Here we go. Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. There's the relational piece. Abba, Father. Maybe find, find yourself in a posture of prayer now. Abba, we run to your loving presence. Next line, hallowed be your name. Holy, other, sacred is his name. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, his name is praised. So we join with the angels when they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. The relationship is for the kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done. God, your government come. Your politics be done. Which is another way of saying the kingdom of God. On earth as it is in heaven. On earth, bring it. God's will isn't something that just happens, guys. We pray things like, God, heal this person. Today, bring heaven crashing into their body, today reconstitute their physical frame around the body you have already for them in heaven. Bring it now. Heal this person, body, mind, and soul. On earth as it is in heaven, let your government come over this person's bloodstream who has leukemia, this person's mental state who has whatever it is that's going on. Let your kingdom come, 
Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we, your church, be an advanced sign of future things. And here's a quote before we keep reading. Scott McKnight says this, the Lord's prayer orients his followers toward the dawn. Oh, it's another slide if you can, Jade. The Lord's prayer orients his followers toward the dawn of a coming kingdom. It says what we're doing right now. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And then it includes our needs. You can put the prayer back on the slide. And there's give us, forgive us, lead us, deliver us. All those needs we have today. It's not just bread, it's forgiveness. It's leadership away from temptation. And it's deliverance from spiritual attack. So give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And this is how we become humans flourishing in the presence of our Father as he builds his kingdom around his Son. We pray this prayer and we become the answer to this prayer as his church. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. That part is in some manuscripts and it's been held onto by the church forever, so we say it in concert with our family. And then finally, in our last two verses, Jesus circles back to forgiveness. And I don't have much to say about this because we're gonna hit the topic of forgiveness over and over as we look at the Gospel of Matthew because that's, as it's been said by plenty, if Christianity isn't about forgiveness, it's about nothing at all. So he says, for if you forgive, verse 14, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And at first glance, that seems ominous. Like, wait, if I don't forgive everyone, then the Father won't forgive me and I won't be saved? That's, that's where our minds go. We won't be in? No, Jesus isn't talking about our like, forgiveness in light of salvation. Our brains go to, oh no, is this about heaven and who's in? If I don't forgive people, then I won't go to heaven? That's not the context here. This isn't a statement about justification. This is a statement about relationship. Again, the context is family, relationship with the Father. Jesus is saying that forgiveness is at the heart of our Father's character. And if you forgive those who offend you, then you're a child of the Father, you're like him. And Jesus is saying in this crazy life, you will be the offender and you will be the offended. And if Christianity is gonna mean anything for this world at all, it's gonna be unconditional, nonsensical, and dare I say, reckless to your own person, forgiveness of other people. Jesus doesn't just drop this bomb and leave it there, he goes on to live it out. On the cross, at his most desperate hour, he says of his executioners, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Uh, then in his resurrection appearance, it's that first line is from the cross, the people actually bloodying, beating, and sucking his life away. He's forgive them. And then the second line there, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. That was in his resurrected body. One of the first things he says to his disciples out of the grave. And then this third line is from the ancient apostles' creed that the church global has always affirmed. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. So whether you look to the Lord's prayer, forgive us our debts, or you look to the cross, Father, forgive them, or you look to the resurrection, forgive the sins of many, or you look to the creeds that the church has always banked their lives on, you can't get away from this forgiveness thing. You just can't. If Christianity isn't about forgiveness, it's about nothing at all, and I admit this is hard. It's hard to follow Jesus. 
As one of my mentors, Gary Brashears, put it, I love this. As it usually happens, the people who have a hard time forgiving are the ones who have a hard time seeing themselves as adopted, forgiven children. And I know that doesn't make it easier. I wanna be sensitive to all the different journeys we have regarding forgiveness in the room. Does not make it easier. But I couldn't help but be struck by Gary's and Jesus' words. For those who've been forgiven much, there's this fear that comes over us with the knowledge that we too must forgive if we're gonna be anything like our Father. And I know this kind of forgiveness seems, <laughs> it seems extreme. Jesus seems extreme here. It wouldn't be the first time. That's kind of like his thing in the Sermon on the Mount is being all the way, all the way to 11 is Jesus. What's important to realize is these last two verses are about maintaining relationship and intimacy with God and removing unforgiveness because that's the greatest roadblock that'll keep you from that kind of intimacy with your Father. So uh, the last thing I wanna say is this James 5, 16 here. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. That's what we're gonna do right now. We're gonna pray for one another. We're gonna put ourselves out there. The Father is present by his spirit, longing on the edge of his seat, ready and waiting to fall upon this place and begin to minister his love to us, through us, uh, a biochemist friend of mine recently talked to me about forgiveness and he, he made the statement. He's like a toxicologist, PhD in biochemistry from the University of Aberdeen. Amazing guy. He's a church planner in Lemon Grove. And, and he said that forgiveness, there's no pharmaceutical on the market that has as much empirically shown demonstrable healing power than the act of human forgiveness. So there's nothing that heals like that release. And so as we come forward for prayer, um, let's keep in mind the things that our hearts, our core motives are being sabotaged by. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so we'll be healed. So let's throw those things back up on the screen as we, as we begin to center our minds on Jesus. God is good. You're forgiven and loved. We want heaven to come into our space. So if you could just kind of put your Bible on your seat. Start to make yourself ready to encounter God and to sing and to make yourself available to be part of others' healing processes.